As I said a moment ago, we are kicking off a new series today that is based on a very simple premise. And that premise is that we all want to make a difference in the world. We want to make a difference at home. We want to make a difference at work, at school. We want to make a difference in the world so that we can live with a sense that the world is a little bit better for our having passed through it. But while we all want to make a difference, we also have a tendency to want to be just like everybody else. And a very simple truth that is grounded in Scripture is that if we want to make a difference, we have to be people that are willing to be different. Now, to get at this uh, we are going to read together through the book of Daniel. Uh, we started doing this last year during the season of Lent. We read through uh, the Gospel of Luke together, what we referred to as the Gospel of Nobodies. Back in the fall, we read together through the book of Acts, and now, now we're going to read together through a book in the Old Testament, the prophets Daniel. Because we found that something very powerful happens when a community of faith joins together and commits to read and study Scripture together in a very intentional way, growing in our understanding of what it means to be people of faith, what it means to follow Jesus. Now, Daniel is only 12 chapters long, uh, and we are going to do it in 15 days, Monday through Friday for the next three weeks. We're going to start tomorrow. And on your way out this morning, I want you to pick up one of these bookmarks. They are at every door as you leave, uh, and on the back there is the reading plan that walks with you and shows you what day you are to read what piece of the scripture. Like I said, it's relatively short. We're going to do it in only three weeks, uh, and if you fall behind, you've got Saturday uh, to catch up. And then on Sunday, when we gather together for worship, I will be preaching on one of the elements, one of the things that we talked about or that we read about this last week. Here's the thing that I would say, that in every book of the Bible, there is something that it has to say to us. But what is happening in Daniel, I think, has some very unique things to say that are so incredibly appropriate to where we are today. As we read through this, as we talk about it, we look at, at what Daniel has to say, I think that we will see that it speaks to many of us right where we are. And so today I'm going to get started by reading uh, just the first eight verses. Uh, just to sort of set up the book, uh, we're going to begin to look at why and, and what was going on to help us set the stage for everything that we're going to be reading over the next few weeks and why it all matters today. Now, here's what I want you to do this morning, and I know sometimes this makes you a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable. I want you to reach in front of you to that little black book that's in the pew pockets there in front of you. That's your Bible. There you go. And I want you to open it. We're going to read together. We're going to follow along. It is found on page 819 in the Old Testament. And then when we're done reading, uh, I want you to leave it open because I'm going to be referring back uh, in our scripture, in our, uh, in our sermon this morning. So I want to invite you to listen now to the first eight verses of the book of Daniel. This morning's reading is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, 
as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. So again, leave this open. Keep it close by. We're going to be referring back to it. So what's going on here in the story? Essentially, we've got two kings from two different kingdoms. There's Jehoiakim from Judah, which means he is from Israel. He's Jewish. And then we've got Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, which was the enemy. And we discover that this is the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. Now, what we know from extra biblical sources, things that are not written in the Bible, historians and that sort of thing, is that the third year of his reign would have been the year 605. Now, we also know from those very same sources that, that it was General Nebuchadnezzar who became King Nebuchadnezzar. And as soon as he became king, he began raiding the neighboring countries. He went down to Egypt and fought some battles there and did some destruction and then he would go up north and seize some cities, including Jerusalem, in what is now Syria and Palestine and Israel in that area, all of which was about 700 miles to the west of Babylon. And we read in verse 2 that God allowed Israel to fall, which would end up working well in the long run. We're not going to go into that now. But what we read is that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king, took the king and some of the vessels, some of the furnishings from the temple to Shinar, which is another word for Babylon. And so he brings their king and he brings their people and he brings their stuff back to Babylon with him and places it in the presence of his God. So he takes the best, the brightest, those things that are most important and most sacred to them. And in verse 3, we learn that, that he commands Ashpenaz, the, the chief palace master, to bring some of the Israelites with him. Some of, not just anybody though, but the best and the brightest. Young men without physical defect, we read. The handsome ones. Those that are versed in wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, competent to serve in the king's palace, and that they were to do this for three years. They would be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, which is another word for Babylonians. For some reason, the Babylonians have a lot of names for themselves, but we're not exactly sure why that is. He's told to bring them into the king's palace, and he is to teach them the literature and the language. He is, in a sense, 
to indoctrinate them in the way of the Chaldeans. So he goes and he kidnaps these young men, takes them out of their homeland, and hauls them 700 miles away. That is how the book of Daniel begins. In verse 5, we start to see part of the reasons why. We see in verse 5 that they were assigned some of the daily portion of the king's food, that they lived in the palace and they were given some of the best wine. In other words, they were treated essentially like royalty, and that this was to last for three years, at the end of which time they would stand before the king. So church, what's going on here? What's happening here? Let me, let me pause for just a moment and say that in these first five verses, we tend to sort of set the context, and oftentimes when we're reading this sort of thing, we just sort of blow past this stuff because it doesn't seem all that important, it doesn't seem all that, uh, all that compelling, we want to get on to the good stuff, right? We want to hear about Daniel and his lion den. We want to hear about the fiery furnace. We want to get on to the good stuff. All of this stuff doesn't really have to do with anything, but I would argue that actually these lines set up the entire tension for the book of Daniel. Because like I said, what is Babylon, what is Nebuchadnezzar up to here? Notice that he's going around to all of these neighboring kingdoms, not just to conquer them, not just to destroy them, but to make them part of Babylon. They don't want to rule over them. They don't want to subjugate those foreign people. They want to make them Babylonians. And so who do they take? They take the nobility. They take the best and the brightest, the future leaders, and they bring them back and they educate them in their ways so that they will no longer be Jews. They will no longer be Israelites. They will become Babylonians. You see, they know that if they can get the best and the brightest, if they can get the nobility, the future leaders to become Babylonians, they know that the rest will follow them. And that's why they treat them so well, educate them in their language and their literature so that they will forget their old ways and become essentially enlightened Babylonians. Maybe you could say that they were the original influencers of their day back before they had social media. Or another way to phrase this, uh, back years ago when I was doing youth ministry, back when Moses wore short pants, there was this rise, this rise of what's no, now known as parachurch ministry. Groups like Young Life, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, those sorts of things. And they were really on the rise there. And those of us that were in the youth ministry circles knew that Young Life in particular had a very specific strategy. And that is that they would go into a school and they would go directly immediately after the leaders the most popular. They would go after the captain of the cheerleaders. They would go after the quarterback of the high school team because they knew that if they could bring them into their group, that other people would follow because they wanted to be just like them. What I discovered this last week as I prepared for this is that Young Life learned from the book of Daniel. Now we know where that came from. So we'll look, though, at the reality of the situation. And I want you in this moment to put yourself in the place of Daniel and his friends. Because immediately what you discover in that moment is they have a variety of options. Option one is that they can essentially assimilate. 
which is ultimately what the Babylonians are after. They can become just like the Babylonians, and you have to imagine that that's what a lot of them did. They would read and learn the language and the literature, and they would realize this is really good stuff. And they would eat their food and drink their wine, and they would say, <laughs> I like bacon. Who knew? They would, they would come to understand that, while it's not exactly a nice California Cabernet, their wine is good, and so they wanted, over time, to become full Babylonians. That is option one. Option two is to just compromise. Not to go completely away from their Jewish heritage. They would still worship and pray to Yahweh. But maybe just to be safe, let's include these other Babylonian gods in our prayers. We're still going to study the Torah. We're still going to study scripture. But at the same time, just to hedge our bets, we're going to offer some sacrifices to the Babylonian gods as well. We're still going to call ourselves Jews. We're going to be Israelites. But over time, they would essentially become cultural Israelites, or as you might say, Jew-ish. <laughs> now, you have to think, did you just get that? Did that, did that take a while? Did you guys get that? All right. Get there quicker, people. Get there quicker. Now, we have to believe that that was the option that most took, right? They didn't steep, step completely away from their faith. They just compromised. But if you were the Babylonians, my guess is that you were fine with that because the Babylonians know what you and I both know, and that is that once you are here, it's just a few steps away from here. It's a whole lot easier to do something the second time, is it not? And so if we just compromise this one time, pretty soon, before we know it, we've completely assimilated. We're just a few small steps, and it's just a matter of time. Option one is to assimilate. Option two is to compromise. Option three, though, was one that likely just a few people took. In fact, the book of Daniel highlights four of them. In the midst of the most incredible pressures to be just like everybody else, there was only this handful of people who said, no, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to remain a committed Israelite. Now, how many of you are starting to see in this moment what's happening here? Now, I'm going to make some connections explicitly in a few moments, but you can already see, can't you? You can already see that this is not just a story about something that happened long ago. That there is something here for us that is true today. Now, in verses 6 and 7, we're introduced to those four that are highlighted of all those who were taken out, these four were the only ones that remained faithful. And the chief gave them new names. They were to be Baltazar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many know those names? Some of you have children and watch the Veggie Tales. You know who you are. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And they were given Babylonian names. Now, why were they given Babylonian names? Probably two reasons. One is to give someone a name is to have authority over them. But I think equally as important is 
They were essentially saying, you are no longer who you were back in Israel. That here, you have a Babylonian name. You are on your way to becoming a Babylonian. And the rest of the book of Daniel is essentially the story of these four men seeking to remain faithful when the culture around them wants nothing more than for them to be just like everybody else. But what we read in verse 8 is that Daniel resolved. And you will read the rest of that story tomorrow. But what we'll find over the next few weeks is that Daniel is written to people who had a sense that, that they needed to remain faithful in the midst of a culture that wants nothing more for them to compromise, for them to become just like everybody else. And as soon as we can see that, as soon as we can understand that, we can then see that this is not just a story of something that happened to those four men 2,500 years ago. That this is our story today. So here's what I want us to wrestle with this morning, in this week and over the next few weeks, is to ask yourself, in what areas of your life would you say that you are taking option three, that you are remaining faithful? In what areas of your life are you just like everybody else? And you've assimilated to a culture that wants you to be just like everybody else. I won't say that we're all or nothing because our lives are fragmented. We are able to remain faithful in some ways with some areas of our life. In other areas, we may have slid just a little bit. In what areas of your life are you, though, just like everybody else? And in what areas of your life are you feeling this nudge, this call, this push, this pull from God to be more faithful? What is that area in your life? Let me give you some examples. Let's just say years ago you started in the area of commercial real estate. And when you started, when you first got into this industry, you said, I'm not going to be like everybody else. I'm going to be different. I'm not going to be like those generations before. They worked 70 hours a week. They cut corners. I'm not going to do any of those things. I am going to remain faithful, balanced, and fair. But a year or two in, a year or two in, maybe because your boss was giving you a little extra pressure, maybe there was this deal that you really, really wanted to get, and so you cut a few corners. I'm just going to compromise this one time, you told yourself. But within a few months, if not a few years, you wake up one day and you realize, I'm just like everybody else. Or maybe, maybe when you got married, you said, we, honey, are not going to have a typical marriage. We're not going to be just like everybody else. We're not going to take each other for granted. We're going we're to not forget each other and just focus on the kids. We are going to make our marriage the central most important things. We are going to be intentional about getting away every couple of months, about going on date nights every week. We're going to have real, honest conversations. We're going to tell each other everything, and we're going to forgive each other for everything. Have you ever noticed that we don't ever make the decision to compromise? But over time, we realize that our marriage is just like every other marriage. 
Or maybe you wanted to raise your children differently. You don't want your kids to be typical. And so I'm going to raise them differently. I'm going to raise them to be different than anybody else. Or maybe you're not married. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you say, in my dating life, I'm going to do this differently. I'm not going to be just like everybody else. Maybe there are more areas of your life, the way that you deal with your time, with your talents, the way that you deal with your money. What are those areas in which you are faithful? And in which ways are you just like everybody else? Because my hope for you over the next few weeks is that you will begin to see maybe one, maybe two of those areas of your life in which you need to take the third option more often. And the truth is, is that it may be hard and you may even burn some relationships along the way, but you say to yourself in that moment, I am going to take option three and I am going to be faithful with all that I have and with all that I am in this area of my life. So this morning, what would that look like? What would that look like in your life if you were to remain faithful in your life, committed to your faith, following in the ways of Jesus? Not just on Sunday morning, not just when it's easy, but what would it look like to be faithful in your commercial real estate practice? What it would look like to be completely faithful in your marriage when deciding what to sign your kids up for? when talking to your spouse, when talking to your parents, in every little area of your life to not compromise, to not be like everybody else, but to be different. You see, if we want to make a difference in this world, we have to be willing to be different. Several years ago, I started running marathons. I was going through a difficult time in my life, and I needed something to get me motivated and headed in the right direction. So I joined an organization called Team and Training, and we would train together while also raising awareness and funds for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And over the next 10 years, I ran about nine marathons. While I was with Team and Training, I had a coach. Coach Tim was the one that would show us and teach us and help us along the way to prepare ourselves in order to complete that marathon. Coach Tim would become more than a coach. He would become a friend. He would help train me to become, to help me achieve my goal of becoming an Ironman. And before every race, every race, he had a mantra that he would repeat to us. And the closer and closer that we got to the race, the more often that he would say it. It was four simple words that shaped us immeasurably. And that is the importance that everyone must run your own race. Run your own race. And he kept repeating that, and soon I came to see that this was not just good advice for running marathons. This was great advice for life. Because there are so many people, are there not? So many people that are trying to tell us what to do, tell us how to live, how to think, what to buy. They define for us what type of race we are in and what that finish line looks like. They say this is what it looks like to be successful. Here's what it looks like to be a good parent. 
This is what the finish line is for your kids. But maybe over the next few weeks, you can begin to define for yourself, for your family, for your career, what the win is. How you're going to get there. You can figure your pace so that you can run your own race. Maybe the next few weeks you can do all that because here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we don't define for ourselves in light of our faith what that race is, where we are going, how we are going to train, how we are going to live, we end up falling in the same stream that everybody else has fallen into. And I don't know about you, but I don't want a typical marriage. I don't want my kids to be typical. I don't want to live a typical life. I don't want to wake up one day and realize that I have lived just like everybody else, that I've fallen into the same stream. And as a result of that, I have missed that one unique life that God has entrusted me to live. We all want to make a difference. We all want to be in a position where God can do something in our lives to make a difference, to make the world better. But if we're going to make a difference, we have to be willing to be different. So my prayer for you, church, is that over the next few weeks, as we begin this new year together, that God will nudge you, that God will show you those areas of your life that maybe you've fallen into the trap of being just like everybody else, that God will show you the places and the ways that you are being called to walk more faithfully in the ways of Jesus, that you are being called to run your own race, that you are called to be different so that through you, God can make a difference in this world. Amen.
Just after Christmas, I got a chance to go to Utah and be with my grandchildren, my oldest son, Ben, and his wife, Haley. They are trying to, uh, as a family, devote themselves to time around the table in the evenings. And so uh, Ben puts on background music, and, and everybody comes and sits. And then, to go over the good things that happened in the day, there are some toasts offered for a variety of things, something the dog did, um, something that happened on the bicycle, whatever it is. But there's a lot of joy in that. And at the very end of clinking our milk glasses and water glasses together with these variety of toasts, my granddaughter Finley says, cheers to God. <laughs> and then we all clink our glasses again. And there's something sort of, it felt like a little worship service breaking out right before we began to eat. I loved it so much. 
our time at this table is so sacred. And I have to admit that when I have the honor of presiding here, I imagine that we're actually all gathered around a table. I know physically that's not possible, but perhaps you've been part of a small church where everybody got around the table or a Sunday school class or a small group where you had that experience of that intimacy as we repeat the meal that Jesus uh, enjoyed, the last meal he enjoyed with his disciples. Those who come to follow Jesus now are following in that pattern of the first who heard Jesus call, ask them to come and follow. So we remember the night that Jesus took the bread and giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. And after they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup, he blessed it, he gave it to them and said, drink this all of you, this is the new covenant poured out of my love. Each time you share this cup, and break bread. Remember me. Let us pray. At this table, we remember you, Lord Jesus Christ. Pour out yourself again for us, and on these gifts of bread and cup. By your Holy Spirit, make us living remembrances of your great love and life. Fill us with a new understanding of love and love.